Three o'clock. So, um, welcome everybody to the Living Sober 2017 Women's AA meeting. Um, my name is Cher. I'm an alcoholic, and I had the honor of serving you this year as a female co-chair. Uh, hi, everyone. Um, so, uh, one of the wonderful perks of, of having this position is you get to choose three women speakers for this meeting, and, um, and I'm just thrilled of the people that have agreed to speak today. Um, what we do, just for a quick format, I'm going to do a very quick opening with a serenity prayer and the preamble so we can have our time for the speakers. Each one gets about 20 minutes, and, we have, um, and then we end at four. So I'm going to open up the meeting with um, the serenity prayer for those that wish to join me. God, grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. Alcoholics, Anon excuse me. Alcoholics Anonymous is a fellowship of men and women who share their experience, strength, and hope with each other that they may solve their common problem and help others to recover from alcoholism. The only requirement for membership is a desire to stop drinking. There are no dues or fees for AA membership. We are self-supporting through our own contributions. AA is not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution, does not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorses nor opposes any causes. Our primary purpose is to stay sober and to help other alcoholics to achieve sobriety. So the order we're going to do today is we're going to start with um, Tensia S., um, the second speaker, Will, and I have a little disclaimer here on the second speaker. Second speaker is Siobhan W., and she's my sister. And, um, and the third speaker is Paula W., and they're all very important women in my life. So I will just be sitting down there listening to them with you guys. So Tensia, if you would come up and... Start. Thanks. Okay, I brought this for the hot flashes. <laughs> My name is Tensia, and I'm a recovering, a grateful recovering addict, alcoholic, and um, I'm honored to be here. Um, and um, a little nervous now that now you mentioned it. I'm like, yeah, I get a little nervous. But I want to say thank you to Cher so much for uh, for asking me to speak at this event. Um, and um, it's a it is an honor to always be asked to speak. Um, okay, so I've got 20 minutes to do this. You'll give me the this. Okay, good. So here's I'm just going to go jump into it. Um, my journey, what it was like, and what it's like now. Um, I have a ton of wreckage. I was, you know, using actively for, I counted up on time about 28 years of my life. It was probably 30 years, give or take. There were some chunks of, you know, sobriety time sprinkled in that. Um, I was always, um, always an alcoholic, always liked alcohol since I was like 12. Maybe, I probably had my first drink of alcohol when I was at, uh, four or five in a hot toddy. Anyone remember those? Yeah, I like, I really like those. I hated the way they tasted, but boy, I, like, I, I can remember back as far as when I was that young, liking the effect. And um, so anyway, just real quick, um, I was born in California, Baja, California, 1963. Um, today's my actual birthday and turn 54 today. Um, so, uh, 
nice way to bring in my birthday. It was quite different. I never, you know, could plan this. So, <laughs> um, so I, um, you know, never really thought I'd make it this far um, because of the way I was going. Um, but anyway, born in 1963, Baja, California. My mother was a Hispanic Native American, I believe. Um, I don't know a lot of history about her. She's passed on. My father is American. Um, country boy from Virginia. Um, he was in the military. They met, they married, they brought me to the States. Well, he met her in Tijuana. They brought me to the States. That's how I got here. Moved around constantly. He was in the military, so I was in and out of schools um, most of my life. And, um, and I will say this about my childhood because I don't like to get into it because it kind of triggers me sometimes. And I didn't realize this until the last time I shared and I got I just got stuck kind of, and I was just kind of weirded out, but it was a really, my childhood was definitely, um, it wasn't not a happy childhood, and there was a lot of emotional, physical, and sexual abuse coming up, and so, <clears throat> excuse me, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in a different space with, uh, I've, I've done a lot of therapy around that, and um, a lot of forgiveness work, a lot of grief work, and I think that that, that work in itself contributed um, largely to my um, alcohol and drug use, or my, my drug use, because alcohol is a drug. Um, but it definitely fueled my addiction um, throughout most of my life. And I certainly cashed in on using it as an excuse. Uh, when I finally got sober, when I started getting sober and started understanding what sobriety was about, I started to, started to come to realize, you know, these character defects in myself and what had actually, you know, what was started to transpire was healing. Um, throughout my addiction, I'm the kind of addict that um, I am such a different person when I use. Um, I don't care. I will steal. I will prostitute myself. I will compromise myself. You know, I'm I. You know, I'm one of those people. I you know, I found myself in jails, detoxes, hospitals, emergency rooms, um, someone's backyard, someone's wrong house, someone's bed who I don't know was next to me, all those places, alleyways. I found myself homeless. I found myself stealing. I found, um, you know, writing bad checks, credit cards, um, ripping people off. Um, you know, just about everything. I, I mean, I, I, the only thing I didn't really do, I didn't steal cars or rob banks, but that was on my list, you know. And, uh, I, and then robbing banks was one of my big fantasies, you know, like, second night up smoking crack for like two or three days and, you know, trying to figure out how to get a big score. So anyway, you know, alcohol made it, it, its way into my life pretty early on and it was a great escape because I was so uncomfortable in my own skin that I could not deal with how I felt. Um, given all the abuse that was going on at home, alcohol was my friend and it comforted me and helped me to feel comfortable that I was okay to be who I am. And um, that quickly led into lots of cocaine, because that was like back in the uh, 70s. Um, and, you know, and then that led, you know, it was cocaine and quaaludes. I don't know if anyone remembers those, but, or if you, yeah, all right. It was like the golden mix, man, alcohol, lewds, and cocaine. So fast forward, you know, um, I got on the fast track with all that, and that was really dialed in with older people, because my mom had already died. My mother uh, committed suicide when, uh, right before I turned 16. 
Um, so it kind of kicked off my, my using, like really got, you know, so I got to pretty much, I pretty much did what I wanted to do and pretty much drugs and alcohol, that was it. So anyway, um, fast forward, you know, like for the next 28, almost 30 years off and on, man, I was using heavy um, day in, day out, managed to work, managed to be functional alcoholic for a while and um, until I couldn't, you know, until I couldn't show up for work. Uh, in the 90s, well, when I was 17, I moved to Philadelphia. And in the 90s in Philly, um, I found crack cocaine. And when I found crack, when I started using crack cocaine for the first time, I'd used all the other stuff. You know, I'd used like methamphetamines. I'd done coke, you know, day in, day out and drank. So my qualifications for this disease was like, you know, I, I mean, one of the, the big things on that list was crack cocaine. And that took me um, about, you know, give or take 10 years. Um, I was using that pretty much daily. I became homeless, jobless. Um, you know, I was doing all these things I could do to maintain a habit. And I also had a partner who was, um, we were like Bonnie and Clyde, well not Bonnie and Clyde, Bonnie and Bonnie, right? So it was like, we, we ran and we gamed and we had each other's back and we did that for about seven or eight years. Okay, so that's how I lived. And I was in seedy hotels and I was on the street and I was at this house and that house trying to, you know, take a shower or, you know, just all these crazy things that you do when you're out there. Um, anyway, I landed in California um, in 99 with, with my ex, well, that, that partner. And so anyway, the fast forward, we came out here to try to clean up. And, you know, I'm grateful to her because if it had not been for her, I probably wouldn't have moved out here. Um, and to the, you know, and I'm also grateful. I want to say that um, that person is sober today. And that is a miracle. I mean, it's just beyond. So you never know what's going to happen in this sobriety thing and where your life will, will take you, you know. I, um, you know, I can get overwhelmed when I go down memory lane thinking about where I was and where, I'm, where I am today, um, as I'm sure most of you can. Um, so anyway, you know, um, I came out here with the intention to try and... Um, yeah, I got to get sober really quick um, <laughs> to get clean. And I did. I started that process. And, you know, I was homeless again and exhausted all my, um, my game. You know, the gig was up. I was tired, 40 years old. I sold two bags of uh, weed. I had crack cocaine on me. I had crack and cocaine, I mean, and in booze. I had a bed at um, MSW, which was Marin Services for Women over in Marin County, and they were holding this bed for me because I was, you know, I had no money. And they said, if you don't get here within, by the end of the week, we're going to give someone else the bed. I was on the street and I was tired. And I had, you know, I had a little suitcase. I was running up and down Lincoln Avenue and San Rafael trying to, you know, hawk shit and do this and do that. And I just said, that's it. So I started the process of recovery and I sold two bags of weed to get a taxi to treatment. And, um... Yeah, I took the rest of my drugs with me, checked in the treatment. Anyway, that kicked. <laughs> and I threw, threw a few 40s in the, in the fucking bushes so I could come out and drink them later that evening, you know, which that never happened. But they were, they, yeah, I had it all mapped out. So once they got me in there, they drug tested me. And usually they'll send you the detox, but they didn't let me go. They made me stay because they knew I would, they, if I left, they were not, not going to get me back. So anyway, so I got sober. So sobriety, I mean, that started the process of um, sobriety for me. It really opened me up to this program because I had, was clueless. I was 40 years old. 
I woke up in um, um, in treatment, and um, you know, I was 40 years old, but I was going on about you know 16, you know, emotionally. Um, I had lost myself. I had lost self-respect, and I just I didn't know who I was. So my journey with recovery really officially began at, at age 40. Um, I've been in this game now for since I was 40. I'm 50, 50, well, 54 today. I forget how old I am. Fuck. Um, and you know, I've been now. I've been um, sober for about seven and a half, seven and three quarters years now, continuously. I had some more time before, and I, I took a couple steps out. Thank God I was able to come back. My life today, I cannot tell you, is incredibly different. I work in the recovery field. I work at two different places. Um, I work at a wonderful place in San Rafael called Full Circle Recovery, and I also work for Moore's, which is Marin Outpatient. And that's two part-time jobs equals a full-time paycheck. I didn't get into this business for the money by no means, but I will say this. This was the most amazing um, opportunity and work that I've ever done. I get to give back, I get to earn a, earn a living, and I get to meet all these interesting, wonderful addicts on a daily basis and hopefully help them get their lives better. Because I know that if I could do these, if I could change my life, and um, I just know that anyone else could too. So it really is, you know, I have to say I'm really grateful every day that I'm able to, 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 uh, to wake up and do this kind of work. And I would have never, ever even imagined that I would be doing this, uh, you know, when I was 40 years old and I was trying to get my shit together. Um, I have my own place, I have my own car. Um, I have a pretty new car too. I'm like, damn, I'm actually, it's not, you know, things, things are going good. It's not the material thing, but you know, it's like, I mean, it's nice to have nice things when you, you want to have a good life, but it's not about just that. Um, I'm serene. I'm happy when I wake up. I'm happy when I go to sleep. And even if I'm not happy, it's not like I'm going to go use. I've just, you know, that's life. Things happen. Um, but I'm, um, I'm okay with myself, you know. Um, and I had, um, I worked on myself a lot to get to that place where I didn't need a drink or to smoke a rock or to do a rail or to take a pill or all that. You know, to let that shit go and not be a slave to it. I really was tired of being a slave to any of it. And I thought, you know, it really takes balls to stay in this game. Not that I have balls. I have, you know, it's like, I got to think that way. Like, I have to realize that it takes a lot more to stay sober and committed than, um, I know how to get loaded. I mean, I'm a pro. All of us are. And uh, I thought, you know, this life is like having two um, lives wrapped up into one, and I get to experience both. Now, I've already experienced the other one. So now I'm ready to, to move forward and, and embrace this and go for it, you know, and see what it brings. Um, I've gone through some difficult times, lost some really good friends. Is that four minutes left? Five? Oh. Okay. I guess I can. Okay. It's hot. It's hot, it's hot flashes, man. They're terrible. Um, I, uh, in sobriety, I've had, you know, I've lost some really close friends and um, a couple friends back on the East Coast that saw me at my worst in my addiction. Excuse me. And, um, you know, what? I got to go see them, well, they both passed away. Each one had, one had cancer and one had um, 
something else that was happening that was uh, fatal. And I was able to go back east and be with them at the end of their journey, you know, and see them and show up for them and their kids and be there. Um, and that was huge for me to be able to get on a plane, do that, and, you know, not get loaded, come back, and not make it about me for a change. Um, so, I mean, I'm, you know, and that was a difficult, that was very difficult. Um, you know, I tend to be a little bit of an isolator sometimes, or I'm learning to be a lot more open. Um, it's just, you know, I was the only child. I'm used to being by myself, and then I'm an addict. I mean, you come on, you put all that together, it's like, you know, it's a good formula for perfect isolator. So I work on that. I mean, I do like people. It's just I don't like being around you all the time. So it's just... <laughs> but I do like you. Don't get me wrong. Anyway, but I just need, my re I just need to, re re you know, refuel. Um, but... You know, but the, I guess what I'm trying to get at is just like, you know, in sobriety, I've got to do all these wonderful things. I have sponsees. I have a sponsee in New York that still calls me. I have a sponsee that, you know, here in the city. I have another sponsee in Marin. Um, I, I get to show up and be accountable. I get to um, be an, an adult. I'm like, I'm grown up, you know. I mean, I don't always make the right choices, but I do my best. Um, I have amazing friends in my life. I have an amazing sponsor. Um, and you know, just people that I'm surrounded with. Um, and I really can't say enough about this program works. And if you didn't hear something that you could relate to, I hope that, um, I really hope that you find someone today or soon that you can. Um, and just, you know, remember that, you know, keep a little bit of hope, man. It will go a long way and just get into action. You know, it's like, it's about a love practice. It's action word, right? Love is an action word. So I learned to, you know, I hate this phrase, but I learned to love myself, man. I learned to enjoy myself, my life, you know, and enjoy that with other people. So anyway, I wish the same for all of you, and welcome to all of you. Thank you. I'll choke otherwise. Hi, I'm Siobhan, and I'm an alcoholic. And I'm an addict, and I'm a people pleaser, and a codependent probably in there somewhere, and I'm an escape artist. I say I'm an escape artist because um, I love to escape my reality, and I'll find any number of ways to do it. Um, it's not that my reality was so terrible when I was young, but it wasn't what I wanted. <laughs> I didn't think I was loved enough. Now, what alcoholic doesn't think that they're being loved enough, right? But it was a situation where my mom and my stepdad were passionately, madly in love, and I was just kind of there. And I sensed that, and it never felt like I got enough, that I was never going to be good enough, that I was never going to be right, that I was never going to be the person that I thought I should have been for her, for my mom. So my first addiction was books. I was a voracious reader, and I could really escape in my books. I could get away from the reality and create whatever I wanted in my head. Now, I was an only child, so my imagination was also my best friend. And I did pretty well with that for a long time, and um, I liked it. Now, the first time I got drunk, I was nine. And my sister can probably recall this because it was at my father's wedding to my stepmother. Now, my father was an alcoholic, too. And he just had the blast that night, going around and filling everybody's glasses with champagne, including mine. So it didn't take long before I was face down in my new stepmother's lap. Um, and I didn't really remember that for a long time until somebody let me know that that was, in fact, the first time I got drunk. 
Now, the first time I thought I got drunk was in the eighth grade. Now, as I said, I was a voracious reader, so I thought of myself as quite the intellectual. And all my friends were talking about getting drunk. And I told them, well, clearly, that's something you choose to do, because there's no way drinking a liquid is going to affect your mind and your body that way. It has to be a decision that you must make to be drunk. And I'm going to prove my point. So we all got on our bikes, and we rode down to a park. Somebody stole a bottle of Harvey's Bristol Cream, which didn't taste like alcohol anyway. And we all drank it. And then I very importantly stood up and said, you see, I'm not drunk. Got on my bike and promptly rode into a tree. That was the beginning of me understanding that there are repercussions for my actions when I'm doing that sort of stuff. Um, as I got into high school, I suffered from the same thing we all suffer from, not being a part of, not feeling like I belong, and, you know, I was bullied a lot, um, and I didn't like that very much. Um, I started smoking pot and drinking more alcohol, and I discovered my next addiction, which was music. And pot really enhanced the music in my life, and I could really get down with that. Um, and I loved it, and it became my new escape for reality. Well, when my parents found out I was stealing my pot from them, uh, they put me in rehab. And um, there I was in rehab, and, you know, the first night was family night, and they're asking me, now, where did you get your pot? And I said, sometimes from them. My mom went aghast, never saw her at the rehab again. No more visiting, no more family nights. Um, but what happened in there was not that I got clean and sober, but that I learned about all these very interesting drugs that I hadn't tried yet. And um, so, you know, that's what happens when you put a teenager in rehab. If anybody's thinking about putting their children there, not a good idea. Because I came out and I was ready to explore the wonderful world of narcotics. I got into acid because if you thought the music was good with pot, try it on acid. <laughs> and, you know, the Grateful Dead were touring a lot, so that was easy to get. Um, and cocaine and meth and all this great stuff. So my parents were a little frustrated that their experience of me putting in a rehab didn't work out the way they wanted, so they booted me out of the house. And there I was, 17, and I was no longer in school because I didn't want to be in school, and I took an exam so I could get out of school early. But all my friends were still in school, and it was our senior year. Well, guess whose house they came to party at? There were no parents. It was just me and my college student roommates, and we started having fun. And I realized something then, that if you can get people drugs, and I had a fake ID so I could get people alcohol, that people love you. Or at least, I thought they did. And all I want is that love. I just wanted to be loved and be told that I was special and important. So now I was getting that, and I thought that was fantastic. Um, at some point in time, uh, my mother moved up to Northern California with my stepdad, and things started to go bad for them. And um, she let me know that they were going to have a divorce. And she was devastated. Now remember, this man was my mother's world. So I thought, okay, well, now I can get close to my mom. So I'm going to go and move up there. Now, what I was going to leave behind in Southern California was the fact that, you know, I called myself Chef Boyardee because I could freebase cocaine like nobody's business, cook it up beautiful. And, you know, and I was freebasing, and I was doing acid, and I was doing meth. And, you know, I'm 20 years old, and this is where my life is at this point. So I move up to Northern California, not even 21 yet, and decide to start getting close to my mom and all this fun stuff. And it's great because, you know, we're drinking together and smoking pot together. And what a great way to get close to your mom, right? And that's where I was with that. Um, it didn't take long before the alcohol and the pot turned into all those other things that I had done. And um, when I talked about repercussions for my actions, I need to jump back a little bit because uh, when I was, I guess, 
17, I went to a party and I got really good and drunk and went off with some guy to make out and he decided he wanted to go further. So I lost my virginity by being raped at a party. Now at this time, I didn't know the term date rape, so it was my fault. I got drunk and I put myself in that situation. I didn't learn my lesson because not too long after that, I did the same thing again and got raped again. That was my experience, but I thought, you know what? I'm going to learn to like sex because I don't like it right now. Don't like it at all. So I'm going to have sex with every man I meet, tall ones, short ones, fat ones, skinny ones, dark ones, light ones. I tried them all. I didn't like any of it. That thing squirting and all that nastiness, didn't want any part of that. <laughs> Set, yeah, 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 you all know what I mean, don't you? And, um, and so that's where I was with that. Well, in Northern California, I ran into this woman uh, that everybody called Mary Mary Dyke Mary, and she was my dealer, and um, I would come from my temp jobs in my little suits and my heels and my nylons, and I would flirt with this woman. And I don't know why, but I just had fun with it. Well, one day she grabbed me and she kissed me, and the world stopped. I saw fireworks. For the first time, I felt everything in my body felt good. And I was like, oh my God, I do like sex. I'm a lesbian. Who knew? You know, apparently everybody else did, but nobody told me. So now I'm in this thing, and I discover women. Now, you want to talk about a nice drug? Women are a great drug. And I got heavily involved in that. But I discovered I really liked the bad girls. So I started getting around um, these women that had been in prison. I don't know, maybe I like the color orange. And, um, and they were all heroin addicts, and there was something really, really scary. And now I was never going to do needles, and I was never going to do heroin. But I really enjoyed the excitement and the danger and all of that. Um, but the girl I was with um, really wanted me to get on her level, and she kept telling me, if you really love me, you'll let me shoot you up. And I'm like, yeah, I'm really phobic of needles. I don't think that's going to work. But she was like, no, 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 no. I'll shoot you up with speed, and you'll love it. The sex will be off the hook. Well, after a while, since I wanted her to love me back, I let her shoot me up. Once that happened, it was all over. There was not my newest addiction, and my favorite addiction became the needle. I didn't care what was in it. I just wanted to shoot it up, as long as it wasn't heroin. Because after living with heroin addicts and seeing them wake up dope sick, I didn't want any part of that. So I was going to draw the line there. <laughs> Yet. Anyway, um, progressing on down through the line, I'm going through women, and they're all seeming to be heroin addicts or from prison or both. And I just thought it was exciting and wonderful. I'm living in a car. I'm living in an SRO for $25 a month. I'm doing the high life. You know, thinking my life is great. I'm selling drugs to support my habits. So, you know, it wasn't a problem. Um, Eventually, I got with a girl that, you know, we were spending all our money on her heroin, and I got frustrated, and I said, well, give me some of that. Now, I'm not going to shoot it, because I said I'd never do that. I'll just smoke it. Well, obviously, that was very wasteful, so I started shooting it, and that's where I started to be. And I'm sitting here thinking, okay, well, um, if I do speed all day long, and then heroin at night, I'll be fine. I won't get strung out. Amazingly enough, I didn't get strung out, but she went back to prison, and there I was, realizing that I didn't have a lot of options in front of me. I was going to either end up as a prostitute or as a thief, because that's the only way to get by when you're doing that. So I put myself in rehab. I put myself in a six-month residential treatment program, thinking that that would be helpful, but it was a women's program. So it didn't take long before I got involved with a couple different women. You know, that became my focus. And um, I didn't really get the message the way I was supposed to. So when I got out, one of my friends picked me up and we had a pitcher of margaritas to celebrate me completing the program because, you know, I was a drug addict. Drugs were my problem, not alcohol. 
you know, that wasn't a big, big deal to me. So I thought I could get by with that. So after a while, going to meetings, I'd start having a couple of glasses of wine with dinner here or there until the fateful day happened when I got good and drunk and realized, well, this is stupid. I don't want to be drunk. I want to be high. And back off and running, there I was again. Sadly enough, my sister was around to see me this. She was really supportive when I was in treatment, and it had to probably break her heart to see me going back out again. Sorry. <laughs> um, but that was my path. So I continued doing that for a while, and... Um, Eventually, I got the message that my mom had gotten cancer. She was now living um, in Palm Springs, and I thought, well, you know, I need to be there for her. That's what I need to do, and I need to get out of the Bay Area because clearly I can't stay clean here, and it's got to be the fault of the Bay Area because it can't be my fault. So back on down to Southern California, I went, and um, I did what, you know, a good alcoholic does. I got loaded when I got there because my mom was dying, and, you know, I had to dull the pain. And then decided I should probably get clean and sober because if I continued at this rate, I knew I would spend the rest of my life regretting the fact that I could have been there for my mom and now she's dead and I wasn't there. So I decided to get clean and sober. And that was March 15, 2006. Miraculously enough, I'm still sober from that day. The next 11 years have been nothing short of amazing for me. I... Um, I survived my mom getting sober. She got to see me get my one-year chip, and that was really great, because this fellowship I go to in uh, Palm Springs is called Sunny Dunes, and it's a bunch of gay people, gay men primarily, and a few women scattered here and there. And it was really um, funny, because when she came in, and she's all skinny and bald and, you know, cancer, she comes in, and she sits there, and I got my, my chip, and she got to stand up and hand me my, my one-year chip, and all the gay boys, oh, it's so beautiful, look at them! You know, such a scene. And, um, and everybody got to know my mom, and they got to hear me come in and share about my fear and how she was declining and how the radiation wasn't working and all of this. And it was really, really hard for me. So I knew when she passed, I was going to get wasted because there was the only way I was going to survive my mother's death. I was going to have to get loaded. But something else happened. Um, I went to a meeting. She died. It was about 1 o'clock in the morning. And I got up the next morning, and I drove to the meeting, and I went to a meeting. And <laughs> I walked in, swollen and puffy from crying, and all the gay boys knew exactly what had happened. And they literally surrounded me, group hugged me, and told me it was going to be okay. And they were going to make sure that I was okay. And they did. <laughs> um, I couldn't stay in the desert, though, because everywhere I looked, I saw my mom. Because she loved all the flowers, and she loved the sunsets and the mountains, and so I couldn't stop seeing her, and I couldn't be there. So I met another girl. <laughs> That's what I do. And um, we took off, and we went to Florida. Bad decision. <laughs> Florida is not a good place for gay people, okay? Um, at least not for this gay person. We went there, and we were staying there, and I decided, you know what, I really want to become a nurse. Because the therapy people that were around my mom, her chemo nurses and her hospice nurses were amazing people. Nurses are amazing people, and I thought, there is nothing more than I want to do than be the kind of person that can make a transition for somebody's life into the next section a little easier. And they were compassionate, loving people, so I decided I'm going to go to nursing school. And I did. And I uh, got through nursing school, and I got through it sober, which is nothing short of amazing, but I did it, got through it, and I became a nurse. Now, the thing that was kind of messed up about that is the last quarter of nursing school, 
my girlfriend that I was with, um, who had actually asked to marry me, cheated on me and then kicked me out of the house. I'm in my last quarter of nursing school, the hardest quarter, and I'm not having anywhere to live. But the people, not in the program, but in my nursing school, gave me a place to stay, and I got to finish that out. My sister got to come and see me graduate. Um, I got through all that and um, started to try to, you know, repair things. I, I did the flings here and that and just trying to find my space. And um, I ended up working at a psych hospital because, you know, those are my people. And uh, I did that for, for five years. And after two years of it, they actually promoted me to become the nursing supervisor and oversee the seven units of the hospital. I guess they saw something in me. <laughs> um, and that was pretty exciting. And I remember calling my dad and telling him all about it. Now, my dad and I had, a, had an agreement. After my mom died, I told him he had to live for at least five more years, because this guy's 80, right? You know, he's up there. And I'm like, you got to give me five more years. I can't, I can't deal with the thought of losing you this soon. And he said he would do his best. Well, um, I really started missing California and really hating Florida. So I decided I was going to come back to California, but I knew I'd need to get my bachelor's first because that's what you have to do. So I got my bachelor's degree. I met a wonderful woman who was not sober and then got sober, and we got married. So now I'm actually, for the first time, in a steady, consistent, monogamous relationship. And that was pretty exciting to find somebody who finally loved me, loved me for me. And that was exciting. Well, got the bachelor's degree. Um, after my father had died. He died actually um, three days before that five years, so he almost made it. And he didn't get a C. His death ended up enabling me to get my bachelor's degree. Um, I used that money and did it, and uh, I graduated with honors. Um, it's amazing when you're not loaded. You can do really well in school. <laughs> Moved out to California and um, got a job at Eisenhower Medical Center, which is the same cancer place that my mom had been to. And some of the nurses there actually remember my mom, and that's pretty cool. I um, bought a nice car. I got credit for things. And just recently, as of August 1st, I bought my first house. Ooh, look at this dope feed now. <laughs> and um, I can't believe that promises really do come true, and they have come true in my life in ways I never, ever expected. I have the most fantastic job, and believe me, if you're ever going to be needing somebody to start an IV, I can find a vein in anybody. I use those skills for the good of the nation. Um, really worked out. Who knew? Um, and so now I've just bought this beautiful home. I'm with a wonderful woman. I'm doing things in my life I never thought possible. I'm back with the original fellowship that I got sober in. And I've got all this time now, and I can sponsor people, and I have these great sponsees. Well, I can't say they're all great, but <laughs> some of them are good. <laughs> some of them I really have an issue with because they don't understand how the phone works, but I'm sure we can all relate to that as well. But my life is beyond my wildest dreams, and it just keeps getting better. My sister called me up and asked me if I would come and be on this, on this panel, and, you know, that's, that's a pretty big deal. I've attended these but never been on this side of it. The promises come true. I just keep saying that over and over because it is a miracle. I never believed it, but I have accomplished all those things that if my mother and my father were alive, they could see me do. Everybody says, oh, well, they see what you're doing. I'm sorry. It's not the same as getting to see the look of surprise on their face when they see their daughter doing good. I wish I could see that. And I think about it a lot. Um, 
But instead, now I can see it in the face of newcomers when they look at me and they understand where I've come from and where I'm going, and I tell them, you can do this. Believe me, if I can do it, you can do it. Sometimes I do, sometimes I don't, and it doesn't really matter because I stay sober and I keep believing. I have to thank you all so much for my sobriety because without the women in this program, and some of the gay men, um, who are kind of like women anyway, um, without the people in this program, I couldn't have done it. You guys loved me when I didn't think I would ever be loved by anyone. And now I've learned to love myself. That took a long time to do, but I'm finally there. And it's because of this program and because of all of you. Thank you today for my sobriety. Hi, everybody. My name is Paula, and I'm an alcoholic. I have a great big book with me today. Uh, I'll tell you later how I got it. Um, I got sober November 20th, 1995, and I didn't come to living sober until uh, 1998. And living sober has a really special place in my heart. And a huge part of the, uh, the thing, big growth that I did in sobriety. Um, so when I went in 1998, I hadn't talked for three years in AA. I'd gone to AA. Um, I owned my chair. Um, I didn't have a sponsor. I had not done the steps. I did get a therapist, because I knew uh, I knew what was going on with me was a lot of having to do with my drinking. I got that. But I knew I was going to run away from AA if I didn't learn how to talk. And if I didn't learn how to start sharing with people. So this woman, this therapist, was wonderful. Uh, when I had gotten out of treatment, I went to the El Cerrito Fellowship. It's across the bay. And if you haven't been there, it's a great fellowship. They had 52 meetings a week uh, back then. And... Um, whether it was a candlelight meeting, a 5 a.m. meeting, I couldn't sleep, I was depressed. I, would, I, I got a sobriety apartment across the street from the El Cerrito Fellowship, and I could just get over there whenever I needed to get to a meeting. And of course, those people were just dying to know when I was going to finally talk. And a few of them had come up to me and said, your gig is up. You're sharing, I don't know, Wednesday, 9 a.m., and I panicked so bad, I was, I don't know if I was in post-traumatic stress or what, but the panic attacks were starting, and I stopped going to the meeting. I, I was too freaked out to go. Um, and so I told my therapist, I said, um, she said, are you going to your meetings? I said, no. What do you mean you're not going to your meetings? I said, well, they asked me to speak. They asked me to share. And I drained the hot water tank, let, you know, in the shower, let it, I took a shower for two hours. I, I can't go back. I'm having panic attacks, and she said, you tell those people no. I said, well, there's an unwritten rule in AA, you know, I'd been there long enough to know that you're not, you're supposed to say yes, you can't say no. She said, you tell those people no. And it kept me in my seat, and it kept me in AA, and it kept me going back, and God bless those women who still came up in a Buddhist fashion and, and came up to me and said, would you share next week? And I said, no, thank you. And they said, okay, <laughs> for those three years. 
So finally, a few women told me about living sober, and I caught a train over here, and I was able to sit in rooms around more people. Um, and I went to anxiety after anxiety workshop. Um, I still didn't speak. And then there was a sexual abuse workshop. There was one for men and women, and I went to that, and that workshop just changed my life in my sobriety life. There was a professional woman doing it, and the way she opened it was she said, um, women in sobriety who do not get a sponsor and do not do the steps uh, where sexual abuse was normalized in their life, um, they relapse after relapse, many die, and they don't get sober. Well, that pissed me off. <laughs> and um, something really changed in me, and I thought, that fucking asshole isn't going to destroy my sobriety or all these things that happened in my life. And I got on a train, went back to El Cerrito, and the next day at the El Cerrito Fellowship, I asked that woman who had been asking me to share to be my sponsor. And I went up to the Kensington Hills every Sunday night. I could barely hold the book. I couldn't speak. Um, little by little, uh, you know, trust was a big deal for me. And... Um, I did the steps after that 1998 living sober. Um, it wasn't easy. The fourth step was not easy. The fifth step was not easy. Um, the day I was born, I was uh, relinquished for adoption in Martinez County Hospital. Um, I think I was in foster care about two years. And so people were letting, you know, I was learning from women in recovery. Um, you got used to a smell, given away. Used to a smell, given away. Um, I was adopted almost at three. I was scooped up out of foster care in the city of El Cerrito. No mistake that I moved in across the street from the El Cerrito Fellowship to get sober. Um, so when I come here to Living Sober, I really come, I want to find these banners. And when I see that 1998 logo, I just cry. Um, I found a button up, up there. They had a button from back then. I don't see all the banners, but they have a lot of meaning for me. Um, uh, where can I? Uh, I'll tell you the first time I got drunk. El Cerrito. I'm adopted into this family. And um, I'm at a Catholic school. I'm this straight A student. I was a state champion swimmer. Um, and I went with 12 boys to um, the Sunset Cemetery, if you know that area. The top of Fairmont Avenue, the Sunset Cemetery is there. And um, I'm, I'm with 12 boys. One of the boys takes a whiskey bottle from the JV liquor store over there, that chain. And he steals it from his father's store. And I'm with 12 guys in a circle. And they're passing the bottle. And some of them are using the cap. So the bottle gets to me, and I just tip the bottle, fill my cheeks, gunk, gunk, gunk. And I remember all of them just looking at me like, God. <laughs> and <laughs> you know, you really don't know what your tolerance is. And um, I got so drunk, I passed out at El Cerrito High School. I think they woke me up. I crossed Fairmont Avenue and went into a hair salon. I think it's still there. But uh, all the housewives were there under the, the dryers, and I projectile vomited. 
that little Catholic school girl, 12 years old, oh my God. I projectile vomited everywhere. They got me out of there. There used to be stuff down at the plaza there. I think they got me coffee. Um, and, you know, I pretty much drank like that the rest of my life. So through the 80s, um, it was great bars, great fun, um, great gay pride. Um, in 1989, I got a DUI up in Russian River. Um, I forget the name of that dance bar there. I got pulled over by the sheriff's department, 82 RX-7. Uh, they chained my wheel up. I'm cuffed. I waited for the highway patrol to get me. They took me to uh, Santa Rosa Jail. Uh, and that was a pretty eye-opening experience for me. <laughs> A bunch of lesbians got together at the campfire, took a vote to bail me out. They came and bailed me out. Um, but that was my first experience with AA. And um, I had to go to school. And they gave me a card. I had to go to five meetings and get my AA card signed. I lived in San Francisco. And uh, I went, I didn't know what, I mean, <laughs> Are you guys educated? And I, I had no idea what AA was, where it was, how many meetings there were. Uh, so to go to a meeting, I picked the El Cerrito Fellowship. I got drunk to go to every one of those meetings. <laughs> and the last time I took my card up, uh, she freaked me out because she said my name. You know, I'm, She goes, Paula, when you're really ready, when you're ready, come back. We'll be here. And so it was 1995, uh, huge intervention was done on me. By that point, I had a, a bottle by my bed. Um, I really couldn't tell you what time I woke up anymore to take alcohol. Um, I'm subject to reasonable cause, uh, post-accident, and random. So I could write a book on how to do that. <laughs> um, but I gave up drugs, but alcohol was, you know, the last thing left, and I just really went off the cliff with it. Um, so I went up to detox in the Oakland Hills, and when I got out, um, I kind of got locked out of my house in San Francisco. I'm like 30 days sober. It was an ugly fight uh, where I was living, probably because I was getting sober and wanted to leave. So I had nothing. And that's why I went to um, the apartment in El Cerrito. I call that my sobriety apartment. Um, so the first big book I ever got was a little tiny uh, paperback, uh, the pocket version, stamped, hospitals and institutions. I always drop money in that pink can. Um, but the first place I went was the El Cerrito Fellowship, and I wish I wasn't so drunk so that I could remember who that first woman was that said, Paula, when you're ready, when you're really ready, come back, we'll be here. Um, when I was five years sober, I came to um, Living Sober, and I went to a Finding Lost People workshop. And um, I haven't seen the woman here that did that. Uh, I went on the search for my birth family. I found my two blood sisters and my birth mother. And... Um, that's where this book comes from. Um, where did I find my blood? Uh, I almost died drinking Corbell brandy, and my birth mother uh, had Parkinson's, a plastic mug, 
and was drinking Corbell brandy in Colorado. <laughs> Talk about a predisposition. And um, she had this book on her shelf. Now, my birth mother had been the producer director of the nude theater of California. <laughs> outside of Sacramento. And um, so nurture versus nature, boy, it's like, there's my wild spirit side. And um, I was able to find all of them in Colorado, and uh, this was on her shelf. And um, I had asked people, did, did somebody try to 12-step her? And my uh, maternal grandmother said, you think? <laughs> <laughs> and this book here is signed by my maternal grandmother's brother, the only man in this string of my blood that got sober. And um, so I left that trip and never had relationships with them because it was, um, it was too much. Um, and uh, I was 15 years sober when my blood sisters called me to say, uh, your birth mother is dying. It's so weird. It's primal. I never knew her. <laughs> and I could cry today. Uh, so I knew to take my time and reflect. Um, I took a train. I'm kind of into trains, if you know me. So uh, I took a train, which is a great thing to do to Colorado and the Denver area. And it let me think and process and talk to people as I went. And... Um, my birth mother had passed away by the time I got there. She was uh, Glenwood Springs. Uh, it's the oldest station in the country. It was there. The mortuary was here. The hotel I stayed in was here by the river. And the AA meeting was right there, too. <laughs> Let me tell you, the, the church right there was my AA meeting. They couldn't cremate my birth mother because another child had been born after me. And the mortuary refused to cremate her because they could be sued. So as the sober one, uh, with a laptop and back then a Blackberry, I located him in Washington through a sheriff's department. He signed the papers, they sent him back to the mortuary, and my birth mother was cremated. So I asked my blood sisters if I could have some of the ashes, and they said yes. Um, and I said, well, what did she want done with her ashes? And they said she wanted them scattered in California. And so they walked out of the mortuary, took the bag of theirs, and threw it into the Colorado River and said, she'll get there eventually. <laughs> That's my alcoholic blood sisters. <laughs> um, so when I was leaving, they said, do you want this? It was an old watch. Do you want this? And I said, is that old AA big book still around? And they said, what's it look like? I said, it's got a blue cover. And they went into the one box that was left, and um, this 1976 uh, third edition version was still there. And this is what I took back on the train with me. Isn't that great? Um, so I can't thank Living Sober enough. I can't thank uh, the El Cerrito Fellowship enough. 
um, after I finished, you know, because doing the steps and then doing that, I felt like I didn't have any, I felt like I was in my own skin, I didn't have issues, I felt really comfortable. And I moved back to my home in San Francisco um, before anything came from my apartment. I had an AA meeting in the living room. The hardwood floors had been redone. So imagine 20 to 30 lesbians in a house on Church Street. <laughs> it had to be glowing. Um, I had a lesbian minister do a ritual on the house. Um, and I've been going to a meeting called Our Lady of Safeway for quite a long time. Um, it's in a church across the street from Safeway in San Francisco. Um, there's a 7 a.m. The Friday meeting's pretty great. Uh, the Saturday meeting, if I don't make a meeting all week, I'll make the Saturday meeting there. Um, what else can I tell you guys? I'm going to end with reading something out of this, um, this book, uh, Working with Others. Who's new? Who's new to AA in here? Uh, kind of new. Raise your hand. Um, I hope I said something for at least one of you. Um, that AA saved my life. It wasn't easy, but I still hung on and kept my chair. If you can't talk right away, uh, you know, try to find a way to do it and do it when you can. Um, I heard this at um, Living Sober, and it's in Chapter 7, Working with Others. Practical experience shows that nothing will so much ensure immunity from drinking as intensive work with other alcoholics. It works when other activities fail. This is our 12th suggestion. Carry this message to other alcoholics. You can help when no one else can. You can secure their confidence when others fail. Remember, they're very ill. Life will take on a new meeting. To watch people recover, to see them help others, to watch loneliness vanish, to see a fellowship grow up about you, to have a host of friends. This is an experience you must not miss. <clears throat> we know you will not want to miss it too. Frequent contact with newcomers and with others is the bright spot of our lives. So when you really want to do this, Come back, because we'll be here. Thank you. Wow, so I want to thank our three speakers again. And um, yeah, yeah, Tensia, Siobhan, and Paula, thank you so much for sharing today. Um, what I'd like to do, I'm going to come back down there, and if we could close the meeting and by joining hands and do the wee version of the serenity prayer.